Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Pete Klino, who is Professor of Economic Policy in School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University. He is also Senior Fellow, Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Welcome, Pete. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with um, one of your papers from 2016 to sort of set the context for our larger conversation. And that paper is entitled Beyond GDP, Welfare Across Countries and Time. Uh, you say we propose a summary statistic for the economic well-being of people in a country. Uh, our measure incorporates consumption, leisure, mortality, and inequality. Uh, first for a narrow set of countries using detailed micro data and then more broadly using multi-country uh, data sets. Um, but one of the issues I see, Pete, when uh, economists talk to, talk to the public, uh, when we use terms like uh, utility and welfare, uh, sometimes those terms uh, sound too technical, too abstract uh, for people to really, really connect with. So, so, so you have a quantitative uh, measure here to, to get to it. So, so more generally, what do you mean by welfare? Yeah, so we like to look at what people are willing to pay in terms of consumption that they sacrifice um, yeah. in order to, say, try to live longer or um, enjoy more leisure time. Um, so utility is just our way of saying, you know, how much what people are trying to get out of consumption, leisure, living long, long life. Um, but utils are meaningless. Like there's no units called utils that we care about. So that's why in this Beyond GDP paper, we convert everything into consumption equivalents, meaning like, you know, how many, how much sacrifice to consumption per year in percent would you be willing to uh, endure in order to live another year of your life? And of course it matters, you know, what your, your quality of life would be in terms of health in that year. But um, so utils are kind of just a, a conceptual thing like people are trying to enjoy some combined satisfaction from uh, consumption, leisure, and living a long life, and you know broader things that economists are 
find it harder to measure things like you know the quality of our relationships and the quality of the natural environment. Those would be an even broader measure of welfare or utility. Um, but we're always trying to convert things into units we can understand uh, and measure, like consumption equivalents. Um, that helps. Yeah. So, so those those four factors: um, consumption, leisure, mortality, and inequality. Um, when somebody considers those factors, there are some trade-off decisions there, right? Right. So people are constantly choosing, you know, to, whether to take, um, you know, a job that involves more hours, but involves more pay. So there they're trading off some leisure time for some consumption. So we use estimates of how much people are willing to make that trade-off. Think we yeah. use terms like the elasticity of labor supply. Um, so meaning how willing people are to, to um, sacrifice leisure for consumption. And of course, the more consumption they have, the, the less they're willing to sacrifice more leisure. So the trade-off isn't a fixed one. There's, you know, if people have a bunch of uh, wealth already and enjoy a high quality of life, they might not be as willing to work really long hours. So we, we really want to take into account evidence on how people make that trade-off, how much they're, they need to be rewarded in terms of high wages, for example, to temporarily work more. So using estimates of things like temporarily high wage opportunities, how much longer will people work? That's critical for us thinking about how to measure the value of, say, declining leisure over time. So in the United States, leisure time is, depending on how you measure it, has declined. Market work has, has gone up, say, over recent decades. Um, converting that into a consumption loss, we really need to know how people make that trade-off. So we use that kind of evidence to make the trade-off, to quantify the trade-off. Okay. And so at the country level, obviously that trade-off is a function of culture. Um, it's a function of, you know, sort of the objective function uh, of the people, right? So they, they may have different values, I would imagine, for consumption leisure based on, based on the country's culture. That's a tough one for economists to, you know, grapple with. I mean, we tend to say people are people everywhere and yeah. kind of like fundamentals of preferences are the same everywhere. Kind of like we say the distribution of talent is the same, you know, everywhere. Um, so, the, but, you know, sociologists would certainly disagree with us and say there is something, you know, known as culture that forms people's preferences and, be, and behaviors, you know, social norms. I'm not a sociologist, so I can't advocate that as effectively as they can. Um, so, but one of the things we're doing is we're saying, you know, it's true people in France may enjoy leisure more than people in the United States. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, let's take a common yardstick. Let's say we'll take estimates from the United States about how much people are willing to trade off consumption and leisure. And then say, from the point of view of the person with those preferences, if they were living in France versus the United States, where would their consumption equivalent welfare be higher? Um, so I give the France example, because in terms of consumption, it looks like they have like 60% of the consumption of the United States. So it looks like they're worse off if they have the exact same preferences even, but um, their leisure is higher, their life expectancy is higher, and there's less inequality. Um, so average you know, welfare can be significantly higher. We at, estimate over 90% of the US level, um, despite the fact that the measured market consumption is 40% is, is lower than the United States. If we, you know, to get to your question though, which is, what if people in France have, have enjoyed leisure more, then um, the, the gap looks even smaller and maybe welfare is even higher in France because they have a lot more leisure. They have hundreds of hours more leisure time per year per person. So if taking that 
putting more weight on leisure, if they have, if they prefer that, um, they would look even better compared to the United States than, than this big increase that we've estimated even using U.S. preferences. Okay, so so in the paper, you're basically considering, uh, like you say, a person is a person, and there are these three factors. So in the case of France, if I understand this correctly, Pete, their consumption is lower, a lot lower than the U.S., uh, but uh, their lifespan and inequality measures basically bring their welfare up. Uh, how far up does it come from 60% down for, uh, from a consumption perspective? Yeah, like over 90% equivalent. And it's about 10 percentage points of that comes from having a couple years longer life expectancy. About 10% of that comes from having uh, hundreds of hours of year more of leisure time per person. And um, the remaining 10%, the inequality, it's important for me to, to emphasize, the way we quantify it is not taking into account like interpersonal considerations, like which may be there, which may be very valid which is like maybe people don't like to live in an unequal society just to be around uh, poverty. They don't, don't wanna see people suffering. That would certainly be good if maybe if people had those preferences, but we're not incorporating those in this particular estimate. The, est the estimate we have is to try to be broader than GDP, but it's not you know, a perfect measure of, of welfare. So the, the inequality that we have in mind is actually, it's kind of Rawlsian, meaning um, the philosopher Rawls saying behind some veil, um, if you didn't know whether you're going to be poor or rich, the United States looks pretty unequal. So you're, it's a riskier thing to be born into the United States where you don't know whether you're going to be rich or poor than in France, where the gap between the rich and the poor is smaller. So that extra risk they're facing in the United States, we estimate is, is, is lowering average happiness on the order of 10%. So that's where we get to, they start at 60% of U.S. consumption. They vault to higher than 90%, taking into account these three factors. And, and France uh, is likely a good proxy for most of the uh, Western uh, European countries, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. So Scandinavia inequality is much lower throughout Western Europe. Uh, life expectancy is higher than the United States. And hours worked are, are uh, significantly lower in Western Europe than the United States. Exactly. So, so, so you're assuming here that uh, inequality creates sort of a sort of a risk for an individual. And if inequality is higher, that risk is higher and correspondingly welfare is lower. But how do you quantify, you know, from a, how do you, how do you kind of bring it to a, a number in, in terms of welfare? Well, similar to what I was saying, we look at behavior about how people trade off um, consumption and leisure and their, their decisions. We can estimates yeah. of how much uh, people are willing to take risk. Um, so like risky jobs or occupations versus less risky ones. And that could be in terms of the stability of their wages. And it could be in, the, in terms of even health risks that, that they face in certain occupations. So we use estimates of how risk averse people are to say behind the veil, how costly is it? You know, how much, you know, and if I can use utility terms, we're saying diminishing margin utility. So if there's a big gap between rich and poor, that's going to lower your average utility. But we want to say, like, just like I was saying before, you want to say how much are you willing to to lower your average consumption to avoid that risk? So then we can say, look, um, people are willing to earn lower returns for safer bonds than for riskier stocks. That gap has information about how people are willing to make risk return trade-offs. Okay, and and lifespan uh, is another complicated thing, um, especially that you have to bring in quality of life. 
um, end of life um, issues. Uh, this is increasingly a problem for uh, for Western countries that increase in lifespan doesn't necessarily um, correlate with the quality of life, right? Right. Um, so you're saying, you know, the quality of life isn't the same across all years. So you're saying things like maybe yeah. like um, when you're 80, you might not be as healthy or let me do personally. When it's, I'm 56, I'm not as healthy as I was when I was 20. I can't play sports in the same way. Um, you know, as much as I would like to. Um, so uh, so we're not claiming that quality of life in the sense of health is the same at all ages, but the way we, we, we measure it though, we're, we're basically taking um, evidence that when some countries have higher life expectancy, they tend to increase the quality of life at all years. In other words, like one simple way to say it was, imagine that the last year of your life, it's gonna be a much lower quality year. That's a simplistic way to view the world, but Imagine it's the same quality every year, but the last year is really bad. If you lengthen your life by one year, there's still that bad year at the end, but you have another quality year before that. So that's a simplistic version. We don't assume that, but that's the flavor of it. We're saying when you increase life expectancy by two years, you might increase the number of quality years closer to two years than zero, just even though the, the last years of your life may not be the same quality as, as earlier younger years. Okay, okay. So, you know, a lot of times GDP is used to measure uh, a country's um, a country's position. Um, in this analysis, is GDP is still fairly highly correlated with welfare or that relationship sort of goes away? Yeah, the correlation is very strong, positive. And that's because of the factors that I was describing. Consumption differs so much across countries compared to differences in leisure and even differences in life expectancy. Now, the thing about life expectancy, if it varies from 50 to 80, um, even if you know 30 years of extra life expectancy is not, it's not eight over five, it's not 60% more uh, uh, consumption equivalent, even if that translates more, it's still just a lot less variation going from $500 a year consumption to, to $50,000, or in the United States, $100,000 a year of consumption per capita. So. Uh, actually, it's more of like a per household number. We said more closer to fifty thousand per capita, but that that's still a huge gap. That's that's you know a factor of hundred gap in consumption per capita, and even the consumption equivalent of the life expectancy differences are much smaller than that factor of hundred. Okay, and so 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 welfare is still overall welfare is still very highly correlated with GDP, but. Not necessarily um, in income and and consumption, right? Um, I mean, do you mean by that that consumption and income aren't perfectly correlated? Is that what you mean? No, I mean, like in the French case, the consumption is significantly lower on a on a per. I guess it's a per capita basis. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, the consumption is a lot lower but their welfare is approximately equal to right. the US. Yeah. So if you just took like the the richest 35 countries in the roughly the OECD, um, then you're right, yeah. the, the relationship would be much weaker because then the differences in consumption are smaller and the differences in these life expectancy and inequality and leisure loom larger. But in the broad cross-section of, of levels of development across the most extreme rich versus the most extreme poor, that's where the consumption differences are coming to dominate and they're highly correlated with the income differences. But even then there's you know, economically significant differences between GDP and our measure. Um, so life expectancy is much lower in, in developing countries. So that makes 
does the opposite of, of what the adjustment does in Western Europe, where it makes them closer to the US, maybe just as wealthy, just as well off, even though their market GDP and even market consumption is lower, their overall welfare is much closer to the US. If you go to other countries like South Africa, where life expectancy is significantly lower, tons of inequality, um, that's having a big effect on their relative um, welfare, consumption equivalent welfare, as we call it, compared to income. So their market GDP might be 20% of US per capita income, but our welfare measure might be below 10%. So it makes a big difference still, even though it's correlated with GDP, our adjustments aren't trivial. Yeah, so, so I'll throw something out, Pete, and you can tell me if this makes any sense or you found anything uh, in the data. Um, you know, so, so one way I might think about this is that uh, when consumption is lower, uh, perhaps inequality is lower, lifespan is higher, happiness in general is higher, uh, maybe the country is less stressed out <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. So those factors appear to have some relationships, um, in which case, uh, you know, we may find a group of countries uh, with lower consumption compared to the U.S., but uh, on parity with welfare. Uh, it's sort of what you're finding, right? I mean, I guess, yeah, like, like comparing you know, countries in Western Europe that have a lot more leisure time, if that's what you mean by less stress, they're, they're not working as hard. So they, they yeah. yeah, like you suggested, a, a country with high inequality in itself is a risky place for people to live in general. And that should, um, that should have some, some relationship to stress. Um, but uh, can we, now let me ask it differently, can we equate welfare to happiness in some way? I mean, our notion of welfare is a, is a subset of the things that we think contribute to happiness. I would say there's, you know, happiness is a broader concept. So when people do surveys and ask about happiness, that's like a whole separate topic. Can we ask people about their level of happiness and does that give us a re reasonable metric for it? But I think those measures are broader than the measures we're, we're looking at. So uh, I wouldn't equate our four factor, you know, measure of welfare to all the factors that contribute to happiness or, you know, even the most important ones, right? So, uh, yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's a movement towards incorporating things that do matter with, without necessarily calculating everything that matters. And so, so what's a, what are the conclusions from this, uh, Pete? So, uh, so you looked at uh, Western European countries, you looked at some developing countries, and they have different characteristics. So what's the general conclusions from the paper? I, the top two, I would say, is that one is there's more inequality in the world than just in GDP, because among the rich countries, they're, they're doing even better because of the higher life expectancy than, say, developing countries, um, and they have less inequality. So the world levels of inequality look even, even bigger. If you look at growth rates, though, um, one thing that really strikes out, it really stands out, really strikes, strikes us, is that um, you get a lot of growth from rising life expectancy. So we like to take Japan, where people kind of describe the period from 1900 to 2010 or even beyond as, as lost decades, where the growth rate was, of GDP was much lower, and therefore the progress in the standard of living had, had stagnated. But if you look at life expectancy, it rose in a non-trivial way over, by, by a couple of years over that time period. And once the quality of life is quite high, which it is in Japan, having you know, biomeasures of consumption and uh, um, hours worked and 
that once you add years to a very high quality life, that's worth a lot. It's arguably worth more than just raising consumption 1% per year for a decade is to raise life expectancy by one year over that decade, because you're already having a very high quality life. You'd love to have another year as opposed to having yet another TV or yet another car. Um, it'd be great to have another year to enjoy the, the, the high, high standard of living you already enjoy. But we, we haven't really seen GDP growth in Japan, right. though, right? That's the contrast I'm saying, is that our broader welfare measure, Japan doesn't look like a, a, a growth disaster at all because of the rise in life expectancy there has been so valuable. That's the equivalent of like adding two percentage points per year to their growth rate. And so, so if you if you measure welfare, you would you would you you find a, you find a higher levels of welfare in, in Japan and maybe a growth exactly. in welfare. And so that's one of the key lessons that we take from it is that rising life expectancy is worth a lot. If we focus on GDP and just don't think about increasing the, the quantity of life, um, then we're we're taking too narrow an approach, and that's just one striking factor in the growth process is saying, you know, we should care a lot about research into health, re, uh, avoiding things that reduce um, life expectancy and also investing in things that raise life expectancy. We're, we're putting a value on that and saying, look, it's quite high the progress we've made in life expectancy to the extent that it's leveled off, for example, in the U.S. in the last um, five to 10 years, that's really bad news for welfare growth. So the fact that GDP growth is kind of held up, you know, okay since, you know, maybe the last 10 years, life expectancy data has been pretty discouraging. It stopped increasing for the first time in a long time. So I guess that's the, the pessimistic sign recently in the U.S. is that progress in life expectancy seems to have stopped for a while. Right. Uh, I want to go into another paper, Pete. Um, uh, the allocation of talent and U.S. economic growth. You say in 1960, 94% of doctors and lawyers were white men. By 2010, the fraction was just 62%. Uh, similar changes in other highly skilled occupations have occurred throughout the U.S. economy during the, during the last 50 years. So th these numbers indicate an improvement, uh, but we are still, um, still struggling with it, right? Um, it, it's nowhere close to parity. That's right. So, um, yeah, if, if white males are 40%, or less of the occupation, that, uh, sorry, the population, that it should be 40% of each occupation. Now, maybe not every single last one in the sense of like, you know, NBA players, you know, might be men disproportionately that, you know, or 100%, that's, that's fine. But um, once we're talking about high-skilled occupations where, you know, brawn is not really an issue, that, that's the, the occupations we're talking about. We're talking about lawyer and doctor, as you said, managers, scientists, and so on. So, their distribution of talent, we assume in the paper, and we think you know all the evidence we're aware of supports this, is the same by gender and by race. And then that means that any difference in outcome is a byproduct of misallocation of talent. So the, the analogy I like is from the, the Outliers book. I think it's an Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about there's some, being some bias in Canada where people who are older for their grade you know, the, the people who are the oldest within their grade level tend to be better at sports because they're older. And so they're disproportionately represented later on on the national hockey team. And in a way, imagine, you know, two thirds of the of the um, people on the hockey, Canadian hockey team are born in the first three months of the year. 
that means there's a misallocation of talent. There were perfectly talented people born later in the year that weren't guided into sports because people kind of mistakenly saw their their lack of performance when they were young as as a byproduct of lack of talent when it was just that they were a little bit younger. Um, so the same thing is going on. We think if you know there's almost all white male doctors in 1960, there there's women and um, African-Americans who had all the talent to be fabulous doctors or instead shunted into other occupations, nurses, laborers, and so on. So that that's a misallocation. That's in the same way that the Canadian hockey team is not as good as it could be if it drew in an equal way on the whole population. Um, you could say the, the, the medical profession is not served by the best doctors, uh, conditional on the number of doctors we have because we're not drawing equally on, on the whole talent pool. Right. And so um, so that misallocation has w- would have resulted in loss of GDP, loss of economic value for society and so on. And at the micro level, Pete, one could also look at a, a you know, discrimination practiced in hiring policies uh, at the company level. Uh, one could argue that um, if a company is doing that, they the managers of the firm are not really maximizing shareholder right. value. Yeah, that's true. If if um, if they and, you know one way to say that would be if discrimination drives down wages of women and um, black women, black white women and uh, black men, then uh, for the same jobs, for the same quality of work, then there's opportunities for employers to. Um, to hire workers who are cheaper and earn more more profits. So the classic argument of Gary Becker of, of that, you know, competition will reduce discrimination in that way. But one of the things we found in the study was that a lot of the discrimination, or at least more of the progress that we saw, found, uh, that number going from 94 down to 62%, so the declining discrimination we saw was more pre-labor market, was more equalizing to a greater extent, opportunities before you even got to the labor market. So, if if people aren't don't get access to equal investments in health and in education, if 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 schools in, in predominantly black neighborhoods are not funded as well, if they're underfunded compared to schools in white dominated neighborhoods, that can lead to to underinvestment in human capital, which then means when they hit the labor market, um, the you know the firms may not say, oh, I want to hire. Um, workers to the same degree in every occupation because they have not even gotten the opportunity to go to med school or the opportunity to prepare for college that, that would get them to into a good med school. Um, so, so even, you know, even if the, the labor market would had no discrimination at all, unequal opportunities before the labor market can mean there's misallocation of talent ultimately in the occupations later. Yeah, so if that is true then Pete, um, there are two implications. One is obviously initial conditions matter, as you say. Um, and if initial conditions are not uh, at parity, you will always have this um, this problem um, in the labor market. Um, but if that is true, then we would see a plateau here. If you know, if we are not really investing into the initial conditions we would see this fraction plateauing, right? Uh, we are at 62% by 2010. I don't know if you have any any uh, latest data where we are today. It's, it's um, converged a little bit. It's not at the same rate of progress that it was from 1960 to 2010, but there has been some more convergence in the, the high-skilled occupation share in say 2010 to 
2018, which is the latest data we were able to look at. Um, we still think, as you mentioned, there's a lot of room for um, further progress. So the U.S. can you know, experience more growth from equalizing opportunities. And, and we think some of the discrimination in the labor market. What I was trying to say earlier was that there can be discrimination before the labor market. And one thing I wanted to stress too is that, you know, if everybody was the same, the discrimination might be very unfair and lead to huge inequalities of outcome and, and decline in welfare. But what we're talking about is actually economic efficiency, meaning how much output you're able yeah. to produce. If everybody had the same talent, then it wouldn't matter who was doctors and who was nurses. But because of this heterogeneity in talent, which is what we estimate in every occupation, there's all this heterogeneity in wages, for example. If there's heterogeneity in talent, some people have comparative advantage. The, the, they're really good at doctors and they're maybe only just above average as, as nurses. So those people who are really good at being doctors should be doctors. Those who are above average um, you know, at being doctors, but really good at being nurses should be nurses. So it's that inequality in talent that leads to comparative advantage that means there's actually an efficiency loss from this. So that's that was part of what part of what was novel about our paper. There's tons of research in economics documenting wage gaps and education gaps that are consistent with discrimination in the labor market and in and, and pre-labor market. But we were emphasizing the aggregate output and productivity implications of um, of this discrimination and, and maybe the growth that we've experienced because the discrimination has declined. Um, but then there's, like you said, tremendous room for further growth from this, from reducing discrimination further. Yeah, so, so the, the primary observation here is that that percentage is declining. So you argue that because it's declining, um, that, that in itself shows that it was inefficient in 1960s. Well, um, we're saying it's uh, the fact that it was different than, than equal representation of each group in every occupation, every high-skilled occupation, um, is con that itself consistent with misallocation under the assumption that talent is equally distributed um, in all the groups. And so the decline toward a more equal re um, representation is consistent with a less misallocation. So we're saying it looks like there's a lot of misallocation relative to the equal benchmark, and we're, and we're not as far from that. So we're not as misallocated. But as you said, we're, we still got room to go. We still got room for more progress in reducing misallocation further. We'll take a quick, uh, quick break. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about this and how this might be um, getting worse in the presence okay. of COVID-19. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Pete, uh, we were talking about uh, welfare um, that, that may be driven by the factors that you consider, such as consumption, leisure, mortality, and inequality across countries and across time. And um, specific to the U.S., um, how, how race might have played a role in, um, in, in output. Uh, and again, you looked at uh, data from 1960s to all the way to 2010. You have a very recent paper that came out this year, 
entitled Race and Economic Well-Being in the United States. Um, and sort of a combination of the two topics we discussed, you say we construct a measure of consumption equivalent welfare for black and white Americans from 84, 1984 through 2018. Um, and again, those four factors, expectancy, consumption, leisure, inequality in consumption and leisure are considered. So uh, th- this, is, uh, this is focused on the U.S. Uh, so, so what do you find in this paper in terms of welfare? So we're, we want to look at both levels of welfare for black versus white Americans and progress over the period you mentioned. And one thing we were startled with was how low welfare as we measure it was for, for black Americans in 1984 relative to whites. We estimate 50% or slightly under that 49%. And again, that's, as we talked about earlier, that's a, a, a measure that, that incorporates not just lower consumption of market goods and services, but most crucially, lower life expectancy. We also take into account leisure time, which we find you know, modestly higher for Black Americans, although the, most of that gap or some of that gap goes away uh, if we say, wait a minute, some of that's different unemployment rates. Is that really leisure time? And then, of course, there's differences in incarceration, which, which um, together mostly eliminate that gap. So leisure we incorporate, but isn't that different uh, on net between Black and white Americans? And we also incorporate inequality, but inequality differences are not um, large between the two groups either. So ultimately in there, we were surprised that the gap is as large as it is, that it's fully a factor of two in their their welfare in 19, um, sorry about that, barking in the background, in 1984. Um, And so part of that's market consumption and part of it is um, life expectancy. So even though we have these other terms, they're just not very large, the the differences in leisure and inequality. So so the difference in life expectancy was like over five years in 1984, five years higher for um, white Americans than black Americans. And so then the the next thing we look at is the growth rate and um, the gap narrowed so that uh, black welfare relative to white welfare is closer to 80% in 1984 and equal contributions from rising market consumption for black versus white Americans, and an equal contribution of a narrowing of that life expectancy gap. And that's partly that it's leveled off. So it's not necessarily good news that it leveled off for white Americans, because some of that's um, this well-documented deaths of despair, you know, higher rates of suicide, deaths from opioid overdose and alcohol-related deaths. So those have, have hit a lot of um, low education level white Americans. And, and leveled off their life expectancy improvements, but there were significant improvements in, in black life expectancy so that the gap is a couple of years smaller than it used to be. And so we're estimating that's equivalent to something like a 10 percentage point move in their relative welfare and consumption equivalent term. So combine that with the fact that their market consumption is also about 10 percentage points higher and we get their, actually it's about more like 15 and 15 because we go from um, 49 to, to 79 over that. So it's like 15 percentage points from each of those components. Um, that's what, the main thing we find in the paper. So the, so the gap is still quite large, you say, but there has been progress. Um, you know, doesn't it sort of go back to from a policy perspective? Again, the, the initial conditions seem to have a huge effect. Life expectancy, for example, um, my understanding is that Black Americans have a higher level of diseases such as hypertension and type 2 diabetes. Some of it could be equated to uh, diet. 
um, and and stress. Um, and so, so I wondered, Pete, you know, um, from a purely uh, looking at how to change the system today, um, there are a set of policies you could you could think about, but. Uh, to make it robust, to, to go beyond certain levels, it seems to me that the focus really has to be on how how the initial conditions are set for everybody. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I think w- what we see as the value of, of quantifying this is that um, if one's thinking about investments in improving health and, and you know, maybe prenatal health, maybe postnatal health, maybe um, school lunch nutrition, all kinds of different dimensions. You can think about uh, investing in um, improving market outcomes that affect market consumption. It also might affect education, can feed back into health. There's all these different policies that governments can consider. And then rather than just say, well, here's the outcome in terms of wages or earnings, um, or here's the outcome in terms of life expectancy, to be able to actually think about these relative value in the same units. So not, we're, we're just trying to say not only here's the progress that's been made and here's the, the progress that's yet to be made, but also emphasize how you trade off. You know, if we can get big increases in life expectancy through early childhood investments, those may be really high return taking into account the life expectancy, even if they don't yield very large gains in market earnings. Right. And um, I would imagine you could compute some sort of a return on investment metric uh, from a policy perspective, you know, if, if the government were to invest into making this gap smaller, there will be significant societal benefits. And, and I would imagine there has to be very high returns on that investment. Right. I, I agree. So, so any government investment, should, you should be able to calculate a rate of return that, that incorporates a number of factors, incorporates, you know, leisure time, um, incorporate, you know, so somebody who works more uh, actually enjoys less leisure time, and that cuts into the welfare gain that that, that, that additional work uh, actually brings. So a kind of a complete accounting, like an internal rate of return, would incorporate the life expectancy effects, the, um, you know, the consumption of market consumption effects, but also things like the leisure time and inequality, which you mentioned. Now, there's one key factor which we've touched on that we don't quantify very well, um, and I'm not an expert in this literature, so I've started to consume a little bit what's out there, but I haven't been able to find what I really want, which is I really want to be able to have a metric for morbidity. You know, you mentioned things like hypertension. So there's some studies, you know, over the time period we want that ask some questions about how much people have limitations on their daily activities of various sorts. The hard thing is finding studies that convert that into dollar equivalents. Like what would people pay how much would they sacrifice in terms of their consumption? If I bring my, my personal example, how much would I sacrifice my annual consumption to have the same health as I had in, when I was 20 that, that I do now when I'm 56? It'd be really nice to know that, you know, I could answer that idiosyncratically for myself, but that's not very helpful. I really want to know how the average person uh, values that. And so that would enable us to, to have a, a more complete estimate than we currently do that would incorporate um, more aspects of the quality of life. But yeah, so what... What we're really aiming for taking a step in, in this paper is saying if the government has different investments it can make, it should be able to calculate an internal rate of return that incorporates a lot of these factors. Yeah, yeah. The, the quality of life aspect is, I think, is quite critical. Um, and um, I, I don't think this is in the paper, Pete, but the, the healthcare aspects of this is, 
is hugely important from a return perspective again. So there are a few disease states um, like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, that is a big chunk of the healthcare cost of the system. And these are related to nutrition, uh, dietary habits, uh, behavior, and so on. And so any, any investments that you make into that has, has very high return for society. But I, I don't think we have policies in place you know, that, that looks at it systematically. Yeah, I think you're, you're touching on, if I understand you correctly, you're touching on one way in which people might not fully internalize the cost, say if it's in Medicare insurance, um, of their own health investments and their own health decisions on kind of future fiscal burden on the whole society. So that's one motive for why you'd want um, government investments to, to you know, in, encourage people to t- make healthier decisions or to, you know, even policies like, you know, taxing, I don't know how effective they are. We have to really study this case by case, but things like taxing, you know, um, certain unhealthy foods relative to healthy foods or just, you know, you know, making preventive care uh, and education on, about health more easily accessible. Right, right, exactly. I, I want to go into one of your recent papers again, uh, trading of consumption and COVID-19 deaths. Uh, I don't think this is published yet, but uh, has it been published? Yes, we published it um, earlier this year. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. And so so this is sort of looking at the macro macro question, right? So you say, you say this note develops a framework for thinking about the following question. What's the maximum amount of consumption that a utilitarian welfare function would be willing to trade off to avoid the deaths associated with COVID-19? And it's a, it's a very topical and relevant question. Um, half the country thinks one way, other half thinks the other way. Uh, so we clearly have diversity uh, in opinions in this. So, so, so uh, give a little bit of, um, you know, what's the data that you used and, and uh, what you found? Yes. So um, just as you said, we really wanted to know, not that it was feasible, but we really wanted to know how much we'd be willing to sacrifice a year's worth of consumption to avoid, say, um, you know, we, we use 0.8% of the population dying from, from COVID-19. And that was based on an estimate that, you know, if over 1% might die who are exposed, but not everybody would be exposed and infected because herd immunity would be reached at 70% or 75%. So, so the, we had a certain death rate of 0.8% for the whole population, and it wasn't uniform. It's, it was important to us. This may sound ghoulish to non-economists, but this is how economists think all the time. It's not n- neutral to us you know, who dies in the sense of if somebody with 40 years of life expectancy dies, that's like losing 40 years of life. If somebody with 10 years of life expectancy dies, that's like you, losing 10 remaining life years. So a medical professionals talk about this all the time, quality adjusted life years, that's what we're talking about. We're saying, how many life years do you lose? So we take into account not only the overall mortality rate for the whole population, um, if, if, if we let it run loose completely, if we went to the herd immunity strategy, we say who would die, how many people would die, but also who would die. And so then we say, okay, these are how many life years we lose, and what is a life year worth? And that's obviously really hard to estimate as well, but we use people's behavior. We use how much people are willing to take, for example, um, higher wage jobs in exchange for something that that's, uh, involves more accident risk and more mortality risk in the job. So 
that's one estimate. There's other estimates people use, like how much people, you know, um, pay for, um, you know, how much people are willing to speed, even though it, it's risky, um, and other risky decisions people make with mortality um, effects. And that's hard because there could be behavioral considerations. People might not know fully the the risks that they're taking, but some of those considerations would mean people are un understating the risks that they're facing. So it could be that these estimates are kind of conservative. And so what these, that this literature, a typical estimate of this literature might be that one year of life is worth, say, $250,000 worth of consumption. And that might seem really high because per capita consumption is only $50,000 a year. But keep in mind that people have all this leisure time um, and that what people pay for consumption isn't what it's worth to them, right? This is like if people are starving, they might be willing to work really hard to avoid starvation. So there might be a lot of surplus that the, the, the quality of life together, all we experience might be worth a lot more than just the market consumption that we enjoy. So put all thing, those things together, it's perfectly plausible that the, the value of life is the equivalent of, of $250,000. But the way to think about it is that people are willing to pay um, in the form of lower wages, lower consumption to have a safer job, um, you know, or they're able to pay more for, for safety, a safer car. Um, all those are, we're converting that into what those life years are, are worth that, that, that are lost. And so then it gets, we're borrowing from some of the medical literature about how many, how old typical victims are. A conservative number would be something like 10 years, um, life remaining for a typical victim from, from COVID-19, but that's an evolving estimate that's, that's moving over time. But um, because we have to take into account, and we're not experts in this, we're borrowing from other papers, about victims are not only how old are they on average, say, say there's a victim who's 80 years old, but you know if they're in a nursing home, they might not have the same life expectancy as the average 80-year-old in the United States. So that tends to shave, according to other people's estimates, a couple years off how much you'd expect an 80-year-old to have in remaining life. The average victim might only have uh, 10 years, whereas the average 80-year-old might live, um, say, 12 years of life. So we put those those estimates together of what a life year is, is worth. We go a little bit farther because we realize the more we sacrifice consumption to try to avoid these deaths, the more painful that is. You know, And that's not even taking into account inequality. But, but I've, I've given you a, kind of an introduction to how, how, how we try to come up with an aggregate number of how much we're willing to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so you estimate, um, if I understand this correctly, Pete, you estimate 41%? Right. The 41% number is, is ignoring the fact that it gets more and more painful the more we sacrifice. When we take that into account, it's closer to like 28%. So yeah. Okay. And, and so 41% um, of consumption, 14.7, trillion trillion in consumption. So you say you get about $6 trillion. So approximately $6 trillion is what we are willing to trade off what well, we should be if if it if we value these lives lost the year life years lost like people have typically done according to their behavior then we should be willing to you know if, if it prevents all these life years lost sacrifice that much and then of course this is this is kind of like the the trade-off we'd be willing to make and then policymakers need to think about what options are actually available like how easy would it be to prevent half the dust all the dust third of the desk and so on in terms of the you can picture like a frontier of what's feasible and then the government would figure out where it would like to be on that frontier right yeah so if 250k holds um uh, as the as the lost uh value of human life uh, per year 
then these numbers, at the very least, is very large, many right. <laughs> uh, trillions of dollars. So from a policy perspective, you know, we, we have to also understand this, that these types of events are, if, if preventable, um, you know, the government should be investing very large amounts to prevent them uh, because the consequences of these are trillions of dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So right now it looks like, you know, GDP in this year may have fallen 5%. And a fuller analysis would take into account the fact that it's very unequal. Some people have had to slash their consumption and earnings much more than that. And in, in fact, people with lower earnings have tend to be hit much harder than people with higher earnings because of the, the contact exposure of their occupations. So even taking into account things like equality, say you had like a, a 10% decline, then you'd have to say, was this was this a good trade-off we've made so far? Has this been really unwise? So if we think if we take that 0.8% mortality rate and multiply it, you know, that that's the, the average across the whole population. But but again, it, it's it's very age dependent. Um, if you think about that as meaning we would have lost you know 200 2.5 million or more lives, and we're you know, closer to a tenth of that. So we've avoided 90% of the losses, maybe less because as time goes on, that number is increasing. Say we've we've avoided 80% of the deaths in the end in exchange for lowering GDP 10%, but maybe more because you think about relative to trend, we would have increased. So I was saying GDP declined, but we were on a growth path. So you could easily get to something like, you know, we've, we've spent 15% of GDP to avoid 80% of the deaths. That's, a, that's been a really good investment. So maybe we should have done more along those lines, um, which is what you're saying. I think that there's big gains from avoiding these deaths. We're willing to sacrifice a lot. Right, right. And going back to a welfare framework, the COVID-19 shock um, would have increased inequality, uh, would have reduced life expectancy. So there are multiple factors that are going to going to um, reduce the welfare, right? Right. Yeah, so, so it's just a, a bad shock in terms of, you know, we're either enjoying, you know, less less uh, life years or we're enjoying less market consumption or some combination. So we've taken a mix of those two. But I was saying, you know, compared to letting her rip that the economy doesn't doesn't um, suffer at all. Um, if that if that meant that we had the full, uh, you know, 0.8 percent mortality, that would have been much worse than what we've done. So far, and of course, the the policy trade-off is trying to figure out: is there ways to mitigate even further the loss in, in economic activity while you know maximizing the the life savings from it? Okay. And so, in conclusion, Pete, um, you know, given all of this, so, so you know, we talked about discrimination, we talked about things improving but potentially plateauing. Um, we talked about welfare, the factors that might affect welfare. Um, what would you what would you say sort of the the major policy um, directions should be for for the U.S. next five years? the next five years? Um, maybe I might yeah. want to answer even longer term, which is, I mean, I think this COVID nineteen episode emphasizes the importance of technology and research, and I think you know some of the slow growth the United States experience has is due to a slowdown in our our investments in research. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do more effective research and partly relate connecting the topics we've talked about is that 
Um, the United States is one of the lead, most innovative countries in the world. And yet the United States and many other countries, there's just not that many uh, women inventors or um, black inventors and, you know, in the U.S. population. So we're, we're not tapping all of the talent that we could. That's true of economics. Economics is disproportionately white males. And that means economic research is not as good as it could be because it's, it's not drawing on the best talent. And so I think there's a, you know, optimistically, if the, the world invests more in research in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, if you think about, uh, we, often people frame the rise of, of China and India as a, a competitive threat to the United States um, and to other countries. But there's a win-win element, which is we're seeing here in the case of um, investments in vaccines that can benefit more than one country. The same logic goes that you know, if, if technology, if a cure for Alzheimer comes from China, that will benefit the whole world. Um, if you know investments that are made in, in research in India, there's there's talent everywhere, wherever it comes from, where it comes from Africa or Latin America, or, or Asia or Europe or North America, it can benefit the world. So I guess the the, the challenges we're facing, um, I think research, you know, not necessarily by economists, but um, maybe um, commercial research, but also You've seen the pharmaceutical industry just do wonders in the past year. Um, you can imagine just research, uh, basic research by government, but also commercial research is a potential way to improve all of these things. And tapping into a wider pool of talent in the U.S. and the rest of the world is one of the keys to doing that. Yeah, it's... Um... If we can look at the positive side of this, if it, one can consider trees to be positive, and that is, yeah, your analysis basically says there's a pent-up talent in the country uh, that we haven't really deployed optimally. And so the country is able to do that. Uh, we can really go places, um, even now with the, with the existing resources. Um, and so, 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 you know, that's one one thing to really think about, it's not, you know, the effect of uh, equalizing that, equalizing opportunities, uh, equalizing, um, or uh, not equalizing, but, you know, kind of reducing inequality uh, to, to zero, if possible, has a significant societal benefit. On the research side, Pete, uh, this, this is not in the paper, I want to get your perspective very quickly, and that is, uh, private research, private companies, pharmaceuticals, biotechnology companies are obviously profit-seeking companies. They get out of certain areas if the economics is not uh, not strong enough. Uh, and antibacterials is a good example of this. They, they don't really invest into vaccines um, because in normal times, uh, the return on those investments are not very high, maybe, uh, which would then mean that... Um, countries, uh, and I'll talk about from a U.S. perspective, there has to be, you know, uh, NIH-type uh, organizations who are really looking into basic research that is going to pay off uh, in uh, in a shock like the one that we're going through. Yeah, so I think you mentioned a couple of things there. One, I, I totally agree with. One is that um, basic research can be a complement to commercial research later. Like, you know, you can go back in history and see so many examples of that, like solid state physics research phys feeding into the semiconductor revolution with huge commercial applications. And it's just really hard for commercial entities to see, you know, uh, short run benefits of some of this basic research. 
And given that the basic research feeds later into these commercial applications, it's, it's a really important complement that a government can fund and should fund. And then the other thing you touched on is, you know, anything that's contagious, um, you know, the, gov the private market won't fully invest in it because the, the buyers of the products won't have a full uh, incentive to internalize um, the effects of reducing the, the, uh, the contagion um, on other people. So if people were asked to pay for vaccines, they might not pay enough for them because they'd only take account of the benefits themselves and their and their loved ones. So, um, so but also things like bacterial resistance. You know, any farmer using um, you know uh, antibiotics heavily uh, for their live, livestock is not internalizing fully. I think the impact of that resistance on the whole population of people, as well as animals. So, lots of roles for government. You know, as wonderful as markets are, and they've generated this huge. Uh, prosperity path for much of the world, um, governments can address imperfections in those markets. So the government's not perfect either, just like markets aren't perfect, but there's an opportunity for evidence-based policy to, uh, to improve on what markets can do and harness the power of markets to make outcomes even better and fairer and, uh, and make the world a better place. Great. Great. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much, Pete. Uh, thanks for spending time welcome. with me. welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.